Welcome to Notice History, the podcast that explores the history all around us. As always, we're your hosts, Robin Mullins, Nick Bridges, and Keely McCavitt. Returning for a third time, it's Nick J. I'm back. They keep letting me on this podcast. Also, as a caveat, dear listeners, if you hear the occasional wet gurgle, it's it's not one of us. It is, in fact, my child, uh, because today we are recording in my home so that I can participate. So just forgive us the, the gurgly nature of this newest human in my life. So without any further ado, uh, let her rip, Nick. Why are we here? We're here to talk about an event that I've always found very interesting. On September 5th, 1945, Igor Ruzenko, a Soviet cipher clerk working at the Soviet Embassy in Ottawa, left the embassy in the evening with 109 classified Soviet documents in his suitcase. Ruzenko had made the choice to defect. This decision was arguably the choice that started the Cold War. Ruzenko was reluctant to make this choice. The consequences if he was caught by the Soviets would be severe. At 26 years old, he had only lived in Canada for a little over two years. However, he had recently received word that he, his wife Svetlana, and his young daughter Evelyn were to return to the Soviet Union. After living in Canada, Guzenko could not return to the quality of life the Soviet Union provided. So, stolen documents in hand, he returned home, collected his family, and set out under the dark streets of Ottawa. His first stop was the RCMP, but due to his agitated state, in poor English, the officers turned him away. They didn't believe him. Can you imagine how scary that would be? Like, knowing that you're taking a huge risk, like, for your own safety and your family's safety, and then going to try to find help and no one's taking you seriously, maybe people don't understand you. After committing treason. And Guzenko understood how dangerous this was. Only a month earlier, another Soviet operative had attempted to defect in Istanbul, uh, in Turkey. Uh, Konstantin Volkov arrived at the British embassy, or consul, sorry, told them that he wanted to defect. The British said, let's wait on that. We're going to contact London and try and confirm that. And Konstantin Volkov, uh, the last reported sighting of him was he was being uh, forced onto a plane back to Moscow by supposed NKVD agents, and he was never seen again. Guzenko was taking his life into his hands and his family's life into his hands when he did this, and he was very aware of that fact. After the RCMP, he walked with his family to the newsroom of the Ottawa Journal. He confronted the night editor, Chester Froud, who recalls that, quote, the first words he spoke were, it's war, it's Russia. Well, that didn't ring a bell with me because World War II was over and we were not at war with Russia. Froud spoke with Guzenko and was unsure of what to make of the man. In the end, he suggested they go to the Department of Justice. Well, unfortunately for Gizenko, the Department of Justice was closed when he arrived. Frustrated and afraid, the family returned home, only to set out again the next day to revisit the now-open Department of Justice, the Ottawa Journal, and several other places Gizenko hoped might provide asylum. But no one knew what to make of this strange story from a desperate foreigner. That night, out of fear at hearing cars arriving outside his building, Guzenko convinced a neighbor to let his family wait out the night in their apartment. The plan was wise, for soon after, several Russian men arrived and proceeded to break into Guzenko's apartment and search it, all while Guzenko and his family listened from across the hall. 
The intruders were only stopped by the arrival of the Ottawa police, who questioned the men before sending them off the premises. Meanwhile, over the course of that day, word of Guzenko had traveled up the chain of command of the RCMP, and ultimately, to Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King. King actually kept a special diary for all matters on the Guzenko affair, which can be accessed at Library and Archives Canada, and it's fascinating. He recorded how two of his advisors, Norman Robertson and Hume Wrong, met him on the morning of September 6, after Gizanko's successful attempt at speaking with the Department of Justice. They told him the story of this Russian cipher clerk attempting to defect with evidence he claimed proved the Soviets were foe, not friend. They asked him whether they should have the police bring Gizanko in. King was torn. He feared creating a diplomatic break between Canada and Russia, while also worrying what America and Britain would say if Gizanko was honest and King did nothing. King, Robertson, wrong, and the future Prime Minister, Lester B. Pearson, considered several plans, but decided to watch and see what happened. As a result, a plainclothes RCMP officer was watching the Gazenko home at the time of the Soviet break-in. We recommend checking out the Secret and Confidential Diary Relating to Russian Espionage Activities by King, which is available on the Library and Archives Canada online collection, for more insight into the discussions that Guzenko triggered for the Prime Minister. The moral, diplomatic, political issues he and his advisors weighed are very interesting and showed both high and low points for the parties involved, as some plans were reprehensible, while others showed their empathy for Kuzenko, and really show all the different ways that history might have gone. Absolutely. Um, some of the plans discussed in there are fascinating, and they give you a lot of insight into um, the weight that was placed behind this decision. It wasn't just a quick decision. No, especially not for a prime minister like King, who liked to weigh every single option before a choice was made. So it was the Soviet attempt to find Gizinko, which inadvertently gave him the credibility from the Canadians that he needed. The day after the break-in, Gizinko was taken into custody by the RCMP, and the documents he had obtained were surrendered to investigators. The documents demonstrated that the Soviets had infiltrated atomic research, in particular the Manhattan Project. They were using this information to develop their own atomic weapons. Soon after Guzenko was taken into protective custody, King visited the U.S. and Britain to speak with the leaders of both nations about what Canada was uncovering. Agents of the FBI and MI5 came to Canada to question Guzenko and review the documents he had defected with. Canada was still considered a British subject, so MI5, not MI6, did the questioning. On Friday, February 15, 1946, Prime Minister King announced to the Canadian press that a Soviet defector had provided evidence which allowed the RCMP to arrest 13 individuals suspected of being spies. He made no mention of what nation the spies served or what they had stolen. The media quickly identified Russia as the nation in question and speculated widely about what was stolen. The public were shocked at the betrayal by Soviet Russia and the story made headlines across the country. I've done some research looking at newspapers uh, just after this announcement, and it really is interesting to see the spectrum of um, speculation there is. Everything from uh, some people hitting right on, saying they must have been after nuclear secrets, to other people thinking that there was some kind of effort to uh, rig the government, to um, rig elections. <laughs> Crazier beliefs and plots where they were supposedly going to attack um, small towns and, and other things that make no sense. Now, when you look back at it, at least. There was a lot of fear-mongering as well as speculation. When you think about the time, too, right? You've just come out of 
this like meat grinder of a horrible war and it's this feeling like finally there's peace and then just how much fear like that fear response of something bad's gonna happen again what's it gonna be this time Mm -hmm. at this time king also announced the beginning of a royal commission into the matter on june 27th 1946 the kellogg tashiro royal commission report on the affair was released to the public it named Igor Gizenko as the defector who had revealed this to Canada and its allies and provided much more detail. Despite these findings, the Soviet Union maintained their innocence, claiming Gizenko was, at best, misinformed or lying, and at worst, a fake in the employ of the West. So let's put this story into a little bit of historical context. This occurred mere months after the world had seen the destructive capability of the atomic bomb at Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the news that the Soviets were infiltrating their allies largely to gain the means to develop their own atomic weapons was all the more frightening to the governments and the public. Yeah, just imagining experiencing the bombs in in the first place, like them just happening, the occurrence of the atomic bomb, and seeing what it's capable of, something that was unfathomable before that time. Um, Everyone's still afraid of nuclear weapons. I'm afraid of nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like... Yeah, we still have that clock, right? Where it's the doomsday clock. Mm-hmm. And that's still largely um, inspired by the, the Cold War and nuclear weapons, all mm-hmm. of that stuff. But also just think about the sense of betrayal, you know, the, the allies that you are working with in order to prevent mass destruction are now trying to take that information so that they can have that power in their own hands. That's awful to, to even contemplate. But on the flip side, it also brings us back into the major conflict of the 20th century, which is ideology. It's worldviews. So the Russians and their um, Stalinist communist state is it fundamentally always been at war with the West, whether you see it in proxy conflicts in uh, especially Spain, but uh, going through the Cold War elsewhere in the world. it's, It's just part of a major theme we see in 20th century history. And it also highlights how Western governments put that aside during the Second World War. Mm-hmm. And how, for the governments who learned about this days after the peace treaty was signed, uh, for people like um, Churchill and King and um, Truman, they were seeing a man they knew, Stalin, who they trusted, be revealed for what he was really doing. Mm-hmm. And for the people who, admittedly, didn't learn until months later, it was still a big shock to find out that, you know... Those Soviet friends have really betrayed the trust of, uh, of these nations. The Gazinko affair is often cited as the beginning of the Cold War. The revelation in the West that the Soviet Union was infiltrating its allies to such an extent, like we just said, in order to gain weaponry and other secrets started the world on the path to the Cold War conflict. Initially, information was very limited as the government aimed to determine the facts and protect an ongoing investigation. Initial media reports were as much speculation as fact. Information has slowly continued to emerge in the 74 years since the event. Just recently, CSIS revealed new documents on the Gazinko affair. Due to the necessary secrecy around this case, there are still facts which remain unclear to this day. 74 years and we still don't have everything. No, we don't. And it makes sense why. I mean, this is a person's life and then his family, and not to mention his young daughter specifically, who are at stake. I mean, it makes sense you'd want to protect that as much as possible. I remember growing up and in the history books in high school when we would cover Igor Guzenko and the Guzenko affair of just having that famous photograph of him where he has the white hood on so that no one can see what he looked like so that he'd preserve that anonymity. But, you know, 
you think about it and so often we just expect that there's all this information out there and because it's historical we should know all about it but then when you put it into context of someone's life a person a family um you know he lived just down the street from where we're recording that really helps contextualize it a lot more and make it feel a lot more personal so that you know some people are entitled to i think everyone's entitled to some privacy and to not having their entire lives broadcast but then there's that tension of well this is obviously a matter of great importance not just for him not just for canada but for the world since it jump-started this whole cold war conflict so uh, where do where do those lines get drawn right like where does he have the the right to have privacy and, and at what point do we have the right to have that knowledge become public? I think that's such a difficult thing to negotiate. Absolutely. And especially in a case like this where the Canadian government was effectively trying to pioneer a way of keeping somebody like this safe. Um, a lot of defectors survived for a couple of years and then eventually um, the Russians caught up with them. So, I mean, from Trotsky to uh, Volkov, as I mentioned earlier, that ended badly for a lot of uh, attempted defectors. Even years later, even after the, the end of the uh, Cold War, there's still like that question of, you know, at what point are we confident that the Russian government has let this go? To broaden this discussion from the personal experiences of the Gazinko family as defectors and to take it onto the world stage in the post-war era in Canada, the Canadian government had to be hesitant to react to the allegations of a Soviet spying due to the positive relations between Russia and Canada after the Second World War. They eventually decided to use the War Measures Act as legal justification to arrest 13 suspects. This is another argument for the beginning of the Cold War, as legal procedures were now being invoked against an ally. Only seven of those 13 were convicted. A month after the initial arrests, 26 more Canadians were arrested and accused of spying. 11 were convicted, 10 were acquitted, and 5 were set free. Notably, one of those convicted was Canadian Federal MP Fred Rose of the Labour Progressive Party and formerly of the Communist Party. I'd just like to take a moment to say that, of course, they went after opposition and fringe politicians. Like, whether they were or were not spying, like, it's a golden opportunity when you've suspended civil liberties to go after political opponents. But also, of course, he was from the Communist Party. This was the time period where everybody was chasing after communists. Or this is the beginning of that time period where everybody started chasing after communists. Yeah, it's interesting to see how, um, I think, communist parties in this period are really split between people who idealistically believe in the cause and believe in changing the social order, and those who end up becoming pawns within a, a Stalinist realm, and they become almost tools of that that uh, regime. Again, to bring this back to Spain, you see it a lot in the Spanish Civil War. So just to give you an impression of how huge this moment is, having civil liberties suspended, these people were just suspected communists. They were locked away by police for weeks at a time, interrogated, kept in tiny cells. Habeas corpus was totally suspended. They had no access to legal counsel. Even those who were acquitted after the trials lost all of their reputation because of the stigma of being associated with treason. In fact, this moment has been ranked as one of the most extensive individual rights abuses in Canadian history during peacetime. And notably, the controversy surrounding the Gazanko affair ultimately led to the formation of several civil liberties organizations. Reporters at the time registered concern that they were prevented from seeing the conditions those arrested were being kept in by the RCMP. 
and many felt action by the Canadian government in dealing with these potential spies was too severe and resulted in individual rights being trampled on and disregarded. The Gazinko affair changed the way that Canadians viewed themselves and their place within the wider world in terms of national security. If the Russians were interested in Canada, Canada must have a significant role to play on the world stage. The need to protect Gazinko and his family after his defection led to the creation of a witness protection program by the RCMP. So this was a very big event in Canadian history. <laughs> and again, it happened like literally one block away from where we're recording right now. Yeah, this is a story that in almost every way plays out like a Cold War spy movie. And it is sort of the first event like this to really, uh, to really happen, especially in... Not just Canada, but Ottawa, of all places. And it's had a real legacy moving forward into like our contemporary times. The Gazango Affair was used to solidify bonds between the UK, US, and Canada in the post-war world that still exist today. And these events helped position Canada as a more prominent player due to Soviet interest. Guzenko's defection was dramatized in the 1948 film The Iron Curtain, starring Gene Tierney and Dana Andrews. It was shot on location in Ottawa. Discussions I've seen in articles about this movie uh, often make mention of the fact that through the entire movie, it is snowing, even though the actual events occurred in September. Hey, sometimes it snows in September. You don't know, Nick. That could be very accurate. <laughs> I feel like the producers wanted to add a little more of a Canadian feel to it. It's not believable <laughs> that this is happening in Canada. We've got to make sure there's snow on the ground. But also this story was important enough and recognizable enough that they made a film of it two years after it took place. Like, after these events took place, two years later, they had a film out. And on location, which is unusual in itself, especially back then. And you think about the role that film and other kinds of new media played in the Second World War before this time period for propaganda or identity, like nation's identity building. So to have a Hollywood movie about this come out so quickly after, it's like that's playing the same role, just in a more contemporary time. An interesting continuity that we can see are high-profile cases of state secrets being divulged through leaked documents that we still see today. Think of Edward Snowden, who also got a movie, Julian Assange, and many more. These modern cases remain highly controversial. However, they demonstrate that the age of espionage and spies has never ended. In the late 20th century, the Soviet Union fell, yet modern Russia has a history and infamy for their use of espionage and cyber warfare, from influencing elections through advanced disinformation and cyber warfare campaigns to more Cold War-style spying. In fact, more recent cases of Russian spies in Canada have come to light, such as the 1996 arrest of two Russian agents, Yelena Olshevskaya and Dmitry Olshevsky who had been given the identities of two deceased Canadian children before entering Canada to engage in espionage. Similarly, in 2006, a Russian man under the alias Paul William Hempel was arrested in Montreal while trying to leave Canada and accused by the government of espionage, though he denied that fact. Similarly, in 2010, law enforcement in the United States arrested 11 Russians they claimed were deep cover agents in the U.S. there to steal military, economic, technical, and political secrets. Four of the 11 accused spies were posing as Canadians with Canadian passports. We've had a chance to discuss the broader implications of this event, but let's come back to the personal life of Igor Gazanko. 
After his defection, he was assigned a new identity and lived near Toronto, where he and Svetlana raised a family. He published two accounts of his defection under his real name, but wore a hood over his head when appearing in public as Gazenko, in order to preserve his alter ego. This hooded look became a sort of trademark for him, and is often how he's depicted. Igor Gazenko passed away in 1982 of a heart attack. Yeah, the the hooded figure is kind of, the, that's the version that I'm familiar with. That mm-hmm. Those are the images that I've seen. And if you go to the Diefenbunker, the Cold War Museum in Carp, Ontario, there's a section in the room about the Gazinko affair and they have a mannequin wearing a hood on its head. And it's kind of iconic of the event and the time period. Absolutely. Uh, when you enter the Cold War section of the Canadian War Museum, you are greeted by a nearly floor-to-ceiling height image of Guzenko in his hood as sort of an illustration of the beginning of the Cold War. Today, Guzenko's actions are commemorated by two plaques in Ottawa's Dundonald Park, across from his old apartment at 511 Somerset Street. The plaques are not far from where the RCMP agents were staked out on the night the Soviet agents raided Guzenko's apartment. They were successfully lobbied for by amateur historian Andrew Kavchak and provided Guzenko's children with their first chance to publicly admit their true identities. And Nick Jay, you were actually at um, a lecture not that long ago, which discussed some of that. Yeah, I was lucky enough to attend a lecture uh, put on by the Canadian War Museum where Andrew Kavchak uh, talked a bit about the process of getting these plaques put in, and it was fascinating. But what always stuck with me, uh, what still sticks with me, is his story of one of Guzenko's daughters coming down for the event and saying to him afterwards, this is the first time my name, my real name, and my father's real name have been said in the same sentence together. She felt it was uh, an amazing thing to have be able to say that and be able to say that in front of a, a news camera and to be able to be interviewed and honestly speak about who she was and to, be rec- and to recognize her father for, for what he did. Whether you're walking through Dundonald Park or reading about the implications of the massive post-war period on a global scale, think about the impact that one person could have on history. Notice History is a No History podcast. We are produced by Emily Cuggy and myself, Robin Mullins. This week's researchers were Nick Johnston, Stacey Devlin, Sam Clark, and Beth Solis, with audio mixing by Emily Cuggy. For more information about the topics we covered today, check out our blog at nohistory.ca slash podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can always email us at podcast at nohistory.ca or find us on social media at Notice History. If you like what you hear, tell your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.